Shh, we're keeping it quiet to open this episode because today we're talking about movies that explore the idea of hiding. Whether you're hiding from monsters, zombies, or hiding in plain sight from invading armies, sometimes you just got to keep a low profile, you know? I'm your host, Natasha Gargiulo. Welcome to Hello Movies. Today, we're going to take you through A Quiet Place 2, a return to the alternate reality first introduced in the 2018 film A Quiet Place, where silence is not just golden, it's survival. After that, it's on to the Canadian film Blood Quantum, which offers a fresh take on Indigenous identity. And then we take a spin through the upcoming Disney live-action version of the classic story of Mulan. Just a quick heads up that there may be a few changes to the movie release schedule, so make sure to check your local listings, because these movies are worth waiting for. With me to kick things off is Ingrid Randoja. She's the deputy editor of Cineplex Magazine. Hey, Natasha, how you doing? I'm great, thanks. Much better now that you're here, because <laughs> there's a lot to get into, so let's get into it, starting with A Quiet Place 2. I don't know why you came all the way up here. There's nothing left. Without giving anything away, we can say in the world of The Quiet Place, being loud has consequences. The monsters are extraterrestrial creatures who can't see but have extraordinarily good hearing, which they use to hunt people. Ingrid, now you got to interview director John Krasinski, lucky you, about A Quiet Place 2. But if I'm not mistaken, there almost wasn't even A Quiet Place 1. Is that right? That's right. So the really interesting thing was he wasn't, uh, John Krasinski was asked to star in this horror film called The Quiet Place. And he had no interest in being in a horror film because he doesn't actually like horror films. He's called himself, as he said to me, I'm a scaredy cat. So, uh, <laughs> but he was holding his three week old baby when he read the script. And he was so overcome by emotions and decided that not only am I going to star in this film, I'm going to rewrite the script and I'm going to direct it. And of course, A Quiet Place comes out, it becomes a box office smash, and the first one made about $340 million worldwide, right, and that's yeah. how we get to A Quiet Place 2, correct? You're completely right, Natasha. It was like a huge hit. It was like, you know, critically acclaimed, you know, massive amount of uh, money at the box office. And so, you know, here was a guy, a writer-director, who's made this film about uh, a family and a father protecting his kids. But now you've got the sequel. And the idea is, where do you go from here? And during our interview, here's what he said. If the first one was about the intimacy of family, the strength and intimacy of family, and the promise that you make as a parent, which is, as long as you're with me, everything's going to be fine. Right. Then the second movie, I thought, wouldn't it be amazing to, you know, obviously what happened at the end of the movie, that that promise gets broken. Mm. And to see how these kids especially live with that broken promise that, all parents face at some point. You yeah. know, every every parent, unfortunately, inevitably, will have to break that promise to their kids because their kids have to go out into the world one way or another, whether it's nursery school or college or getting married or whatever. It, it, at some point, they're on their own. Ingrid, did you talk about how the audience played a role in his and his wife, Emily Blunt's decision to go back to a quiet place? Yeah, that's a really good question because... He and Emily Blunt, who are very much uh, simpatico, they work together. I mean, he would write the script and give her pages to read. So they were very, very tight on this. They were both amazed and shocked at how, how much the audience loved this movie. So he said that he wasn't going to make a sequel just for the sake of making a sequel. This was about making a movie that was going to be as good or better. And he owed it to the audience because the audience gave him so much love. And, uh, you know, this, here's what he said about that. 
the first one was a love letter to my kids. The second one's a love letter to the audience that says, you know, I promise I'll deliver you something that's worthy of how much love you gave us on the first one. I think it's so cool that John and Emily Blunt are a team on this film. Did you get a chance to ask them about their process of working together and what it was like this time around? Oh my gosh, yeah. This is so much fun to talk to them about because the most interesting thing was that she actually wasn't interested in coming back to do a sequel. She's never done a sequel before and she wasn't, she said, if you go back, great, but I'm not that interested. And then he kind of sold her on his idea, which was about this, you know, broken promises that the, the parents parents, uh, you know, might not be able to protect your kids anymore. And she said, okay, I'm in. He, he said this really sweet thing, which was, uh, he believes that, you know, one day Emily Blunt, if she chooses to, will become the best director and producer out there because she's so smart. She has such a keen eye for story detail and structure and she just has it. And so he was just very effusive about how much, you know, how skilled she is in this and what a team they, they are. And uh, he just made you kind of really like him even more. No kidding. I'm swooning over here. Okay, let's get back to the movie. We're doing our very best not to spoil anything, but there are references right there in the trailer telling us that this time around, the monsters are not the only thing to be afraid of, right? Well, right. I mean, the idea that they're leaving their farmhouse and you're coming in contact with people. And we know when sort of movies and television post you know, apocalyptic world, sometimes people are scarier than the monsters that are out there. But we haven't even mentioned, which is a key element here, is not only is Emily Bond, Evelyn Abbott and her two kids going out, they're going out with a newborn baby and newborn babies make noise. So that stress, the stress of the film, the first film that we felt is even upped more because they're carrying around a baby in a basket. And so, you know, to me, it goes beyond stress. It goes into this level of, you know, terror, like, oh, my gosh, you know, what are they going to do? Oh, my God, that sounds so terrifying. Okay, I hear there's a specific shot in the movie that you and John talked about. It's that long, continuous take where Emily Blunt's character, and actually Emily herself, not a stunt driver, drives extremely fast backwards. What did he have to say about that? Oh, yeah, that was very interesting. Um, That's in a sort of in the sense of uh, where we see the first... They call it first day or day one when the uh, aliens arrive. And so what I think is interesting is John Krasinski is really testing himself as a director here. And he called this a uh, wonder. And that's what you call uh, these shots that are one long continuous take where you don't cut. So he decided we're going to do this. We're going to shoot this in one take. And Emily, you're going to drive. And he said that, you know, on the script on paper, it sounded great until the day of the shooting where it's like, oh, my God, we're really going to do this. But he said that was the day everybody was the most alive. He felt the most as a director on that day because that's a day he has to test his metal. He it's choreographed, it's practiced. Here they are, they're doing it. And he said it was the you know, the best day of the the shoot. And Emily Blunt again added to her list of things that she can do besides singing, dancing, acting, and now driving car backwards. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, that that's a scene. And I think that's really showing him, John Krasinski, as a, as a director evolving. It's sort of it's evolution. You know, you put these one shots in and sometimes they're show off. I think here he wanted to show us in one scene the sort of terror of how this all happened. And I think it's a brilliant decision. And it's also showing he's developing as director. I'm really excited for his, you know, next projects as a, as a director. And I bet that scene looks really cool on the big screen. Yes, it's exactly what you want to go see a movie for. It's a big screen. I mean, I remember seeing Quiet Place, the first one in the theater on the big screen. Here you are with a group of people 
at this moment and everybody was silent. Like nobody talked or moved in that movie because you're so tense. And mm. this movie's going to have that, but also with these kind of big action moment. Um, I think it's going to, you know, really excite you to be in the theater to see it like that, but also be into this world where you're going to be very tense. And I love that feeling of being in a movie theater with other people who can feel that tension. It's going to be awesome. Oh, I love it. I can't wait to see A Quiet Place too. Thank you, Ingrid. But stick around because I'm going to bring you back later to get your thoughts on Mulan, okay? Sounds great. Coming up next, we talk about a film where everyone's hiding from the zombie apocalypse, but where if you happen to be indigenous, you have a particular advantage. Plus, we'll look at an ancient Chinese story of a girl who hides in plain sight by dressing as a man, and what lessons this story offers for modern feminism. So stick around. I'm Natasha Gorgiulo, and this is Hello Movies. Every two weeks, we take movie lovers on a journey through what to see in theater and why. To get all that great commentary and perspective uninterrupted, subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. And don't forget, we love hearing from you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Cineplex Movies. Okay, now we're getting into some gruesomely good Canadian content with Blood Quantum. Ain't nobody immune here but us. We're supposed to be helping people. We're supposed to be surviving. Like the recent films Get Out and Parasite, Blood Quantum is a genre film with a strong underlying political message. In the film, zombies are taking over the world, yet one isolated indigenous community seems to be immune to the plague. Blood Quantum has historically been associated with measuring the percentage of someone's indigenous ancestry and whether one can then be identified as part of a specific nation or group. In the film, though, it can mean the difference between staying human or becoming a zombie. Jeff Barnaby, the writer and director of Blood Quantum, is here with me now to help get into the guts of the story. So, Jeff, welcome to Hello Movies. Obviously, I heard a lot about this film, and I saw this film as well, and it's everything you would expect from a zombie horror film, right? Lots of guts, lots of gore, lots of blood. Where did this premise come up? Like, where did this idea originate from? I wanted to do a zombie film. It just started that simply and when we were sitting down i think it was 2006 at tiff we were sitting around the producer and i and it's like we should do a zombie movie and he was like ah oh, that's a terrible idea everybody's doing zombie films and right when he said that i said well what if we make the natives immune to the zombie plague and it just started just like that and it was just that conversation started from there and this is over 10 years ago. This was way before everybody got woke and everybody was about land issues and everybody was about minority issues. It was still, at the time, not as prevalent as it is now where you start seeing people like Jordan Peele win yeah. Oscars and Taika win Oscars. It was uh, before its time. The idea was before its time. So we had to sit on it for this long for the culture to catch up almost. Yeah, sure. So what did you draw from your own experiences to make this film perhaps one of the best zombie films out there? Well, I, I I think for the longest time looking at natives on film, I didn't really feel represented even though they were there. I didn't feel like they were, you know, chewing the same dirt that I grew up in. Mm. So I started there. I started wanting to make films about native people. And I think when you start joining them with things like horror movies or science fiction movies or you know anything I've been doing over the years you start seeing a new a new form almost like a new genre if you can call it that so 
I think my perspective of growing up a native person on the outside of Canadian culture gives you the unique ability to look at it objectively. There's no conscious effort to sit there and say, oh, I'm going to be a socially, you know, a socially proactive filmmaker. You just do that because literally that's what I experienced growing up. My first cinematic experience wasn't in a theater. It was when Alanisa Bumsuin came to my reserve and, and filmed Incident at Restigush, which was like the precursor to like the Oka crisis. And mm. I was infused with political sensibilities and cinematic sensibilities at the same time. So the two are synonymous. I, I, I can't separate the two. To me, films have to be political. I'm interested in talking a little more about the creative process because I find it really fascinating, especially in this film. Why a zombie movie? When you're trying to put in off-putting political ideas, you need to find a vehicle to make that palatable. And zombies are right now, in a lot of ways, the lowest common denominator. Mm. I, I try to make uh, popcorn movies. Like my favorite films are like Conan the Barbarian and mm -hmm. Roadhouse, and you know, stupid movies. <laughs> But I don't think they're not without their merit. So you can apply these really high appeal concepts to really dark subject matter and still have a kind of a popcorn film. And I, I think that's kind of what I tried to do with Blood yeah. Quantum and Rhymes. And really my whole career is take these issues that people have a hard time coming to terms with and putting them in a platform by which they can discuss them. Zombie films, you know, heist films, things like that. I've heard that some people have actually gone back to watch it a second time because they, they've learned stuff from it or they've, they want to go and research more of the, pol the politics that went into making this film. I can see that because when you look at the film, it'll be pretty hard not to get distracted by what you're seeing. To, but this is the earmark of all my stuff, right? You got to look past the, uh, the chainsaw desks to the... To the to the uh, meaning underneath. <laughs> it's hard to look past some of those scenes. But that's what I mean. You're, you're, <laughs> you're kind of so preoccupied with the violence yeah. and and some of the hyperbole in the film. You're not really focused on what it's saying. And I think that's what gives these films shelf life, right? I think that's why people still talk about The Shining because it's such a weird movie right. and it's so hard to wrap your head around. And there's so many films like this, right, where you where you you spend the rest of your days trying to figure them out. It's weird to say about a film where you see people getting chainsawed in half, there's mm -hmm. a lot of nuance to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so what's next for you work-wise? Uh, I'm tackling a couple of things. Uh, I'm trying to write a cosmic horror film that explains the, the native burial trope that you see in horror films. For me, I love making films, but I love helping young filmmakers as much I, I if i had to choose between the two i don't know what i'd be able to i don't know if i'd be able to make that choice because i think when you're a young native person and you're witnessing your likeness on screen being controlled by other people it can really give you the wrong impression about who you are and how you should feel about yourself and i think these young people much like I was at their age, taking control of that image is doing a lot to heal those wounds and, and do a lot for their self-esteem and could help turn around the problems that we're seeing here. Because when you look at the way Native people have been villainized over 100 years of cinema, it would be remiss to say that if you started representing them in the right way, you couldn't undo that damage. So mm -hmm. really the same. It's all the same. That's what next. That's what's next for me. I'll, be, I'll keep doing genre films that tackle colonial issues and and 
try to drag our history into the into the light so we can all have a conversation about it that doesn't lead to blockades and and what we're seeing now. Okay, I'm bringing Ingrid Randoja back out of hiding now to talk about the Disney live-action Mulan movie. Do you know why the phoenix sits on the right hand of the emperor? She is his guardian, his protector. That she's both beautiful and strong. Your job is to bring honor to the family. Do you think you can do that? Ingrid, the original story of a girl disguising herself as a soldier to fight in the Chinese army and preserve her family's honor dates back about 1,500 years or so. So how is this story and how is this movie relevant to girls today? You know, Mulan is based on a 6th century Chinese folk song, The Ballad of Mulan, about a girl who disguises herself as a young man to go to war in place of her father. And the song ends with the line, but when the two rabbits run side by side... How can you tell the female from the male? And I just find that really moving and interesting. The idea that when you go to war, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, you know, you are the warrior. And this might be 1,500 years old, but this is so long overdue. This is an overdue story. We rarely ever see a young woman be the hero in a big action historical epic. It's just amazing. Yeah, and the star, Yi Fei Lu, what do you know about her? Because she seriously kicks butt on screen as Mulan. Yeah, she's really interesting. Uh, She's born in China, but when she was 10 years old, she moved with her mom to New York City and lived in the States till she was 15, and then moved back to China, where she studied acting, uh, became a model, a singer, and quite a popular TV star. And when when the role came up, uh, they auditioned over a thousand actors for the role, and she nailed it. And so she's also done all her own training for this. She spent months and months uh, learning horseback riding, archery, wire work, uh, battle scenes, battle fighting. So she's thrown herself totally into the role. That's impressive. And she's not the only girl power in this movie, right? Yeah, this is what's what's so cool about this movie is that it's uh, directed by a woman, Nikki Caro, a New Zealand filmmaker uh, who made Whale Rider. The cinematographer is an Australian woman named Mandy Walker who shot Australia and Hidden Figures. And three out of the four writers are women. So you have this sort of, you know, woman power at the, at the top, you know, who are, who are really creating this film. And that is really, really rare. And it's a, it's a testament to uh, Disney for bringing these people in and making sure that there's sort of a female voice at the, at, at the very top of the film. And the visual style here really seems epic. I mean, what are you looking forward to in terms of seeing this in a theater? Well, I think that to me is like one of the biggest selling points. The filmmakers made a point to to really make uh, all the battle scenes and all the adventures set in a huge sprawling landscape. They shot the film mostly in New Zealand and also in doing that, they went out and actually got special lenses made for the camera so they could create these epic vistas. Uh, they actually used some of the lenses that were used in, in Lawrence of Arabia, which is probably one of the most visually spectacular films ever made. And what's really interesting is they also made uh, points where they would say, listen, let's keep Mulan in a red costume and we're going to have these these vistas in sort of a gray monotone. So we'll always have our eyes on Mulan. So there's this red dot in these great vistas. And that kind of, you know, attention to detail is what, you know, you're going to see on the big screen with this film. Another movie I can't wait to see. Thank you, Ingrid. 
I'm Natasha Gargiulo, and that's it for this episode of Hello Movies, brought to you by Cineplex. Join us next time when we take a look at the value and challenges in remaking certain movies. And remember, check your local listings for release schedules.